Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Takecast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter, at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I am joined by Jason Strasser, who is the co-founder and the CIO of Caption Partners, which is a financial investing firm. And, uh, you know, honestly, I, I reached out to Jason because I, I've seen him do podcast episodes in the past, found him to be very knowledgeable on the markets and what, uh, you know, kind of just what drives the global economy, some of the risk factors at play. And, you know, to me, bear markets are, are kind of more interesting than bull markets. And I really appreciated a lot of what Jason had to say about traditional markets, crypto markets, energy markets, kind of the, the whole gamut of what people do with their money. So I kind of just sat back and listened to what Jason had to say. Uh, if you guys like this show, please consider supporting it via subscribing on Patreon, patreon.com slash takecast, leaving a rating or review on iTunes, or just telling someone about the show. That's always very useful and very helpful. Now let's go ahead and get into the episode. All right, everyone, welcoming in Jason Strasser here to the program. I was, I was kind of thinking, I just, I need someone with some experience in the traditional markets, someone who is not just, uh, you know, this is all, it's all going to zero and Bitcoin's going to be the world reserve currency or, you know, uh, you know, some, a little bit more of a traditional perspective, because to be honest, I mean, I think at this point, Jason, it's very clear, the traditional markets are, are both closely correlated and having a huge impact on the crypto stuff that that a lot of us care about. But first of all, thank you very much for joining the program. I really appreciate the time. Happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, well, actually before we get there, let's just talk a little bit about what you do with caption partners. We don't have to. We don't have to. You know, you don't have to advertise your trades or anything like that. But just a little bit, what your day to day is like. Sure. So my whole career has been focused on options trading. So the really really short version is I buy and sell options all day. I try to I. You know, I have a, I have what I think is an informed opinion on what I think an option is worth. And I'm just trying, it's just kind of the, it, I always, it's like being a bookie in sports betting. Like you have an informed idea of what the line is and you're just trying to make markets around that line. That's the very short dumbed down version of it. But basically uh, I trade a lot of options and um, across lots of different sectors, lots of crazy things, lots of boring things. And I'm just sort of scalping the same way uh, a poker player would scalp for edge or a sports player would scalp for edge. So 
in in trading options, I, I guess higher volatility moments of time like this are, I mean, probably like you're probably, I, I would kind of assume that, you know, lots of people who are involved in the financial sector right now in in market making and things, they're probably trying to not make a lot of decisions right now. But is it is it the opposite for you? Are you trying to make lots of decisions right now when things are so choppy? It's it's interesting question. So I focus on individual stock options. So it, we see we see a trend that helps us and a trend that hurts us. The trend that helps us is when markets get wild, uh, bid offer spreads widen out. And like this is the truth in any market. You look at crypto. You look at right. anything. When, but it, when crypto is really quiet, you know you can buy like a thousand Bitcoin within a few dollars or whatever. I I'm, I don't know much about Bitcoin trading, but you know you can buy a lot within a you know tight band. When when markets get more volatile, they get less liquid and bid offer spreads widen out. Liquidity dries up. So and and when you're when you're uh, providing liquidity in options markets like we are, uh, it's good when things get wider. Um, obviously, when we're trying to cross spread, it's not as good. We do some of that as well, but net net is usually positive for us. The negative is that when times get really weird like this. A lot of the option volume we see in options shifts from individual stocks to ETFs and index options. People are like, fuck, I need to hedge my portfolio, right? They're just trading S&P options or shit, I need to hedge my oil exposure. They're trading oil options or like, you know, one of these oil ETFs like XOP, XLE, whatever. So some of the, vol we see these volume shifts when markets get wild that are not helpful for us because we're not very active in the sort of very deep liquid products. Um, but yeah, long story short, it's at least, at the very least, it's more interesting than normal, <laughs> but there are some pros and cons for sort of my day-to-day. -day. Yeah, I mean, just as, as uh, a buy and holder, I mean, it, it, it attempts for me at trading have, have mostly ended in, in getting wrecked. So it, like as, a, as someone who just approaches financial markets from a, I'm gonna buy this and I'm gonna let inflation, you know, just kind of do its thing. It just, it seems, to, well, you know, kind of, I. I guess on one hand, it seems terrifying because it's like, oh, what if I needed to retire right now? And I was trying to pull all the value out of this. It's like, I, you know, I just, I did 10 years of, of uh, value storage for absolutely nothing. And then, you know, also with a more optimistic point of view, like, okay, you, you, you get your money in good right now, you're getting good prices because not only is inflation going to appreciate the value of these things, but they're also a little bit artificially deflated. But I guess the you know we're we're at peak uh you know fud right now the 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 uncertainty fear and doubt are are so yeah. high right now that um and and you know of course depending on who you listen to there will be various diagnosis of of the financial problems all around the world so i guess just from a very very macro sense what is your diagnosis of this period of recession that we are in right now well, it's to be determined whether we're actually, we're actually in a recession now. I, I agree with you. It seems like a foregone conclusion we're going to enter that territory soon. Right. It, the markets are priced, obviously, like we're going to enter some type of recession. That's, I think the last time I was on a podcast like a month ago, and we were talking about like 50-50, and now it's like 90-10. You know? Basically, we need to like run super good to not hit a recession right now. I mean, a lot of things have to go in our favor. Um, I mean, I think the way I think about markets now is that there's this really, really, really ugly scenario that still hasn't really played out that is a small percent outcome, something like maybe 10%. And that's really the scenario where we get like a recession and then we don't get inflation under control. You know, there, yeah. that, is, that is possible, right? And you got to think about like the kinds of, inflation's complicated, right? There's some things that you, you feel very confident prices will, you know, prices will come down in certain areas when we have a recession. So for example, you know, 
probably housing prices take a chill pill. You know, things like, um, I don't know, uh, car prices, you know, those kind of things. You know, you feel pretty confident those will take a chill. Oil, uh, even things like wages, uh, you know, the, the economy is still looking, for, there's still a lot of, a lot of open jobs and, and it's very tight labor market. So I think there's a small scenario where you get a recession and you get inflation that's kind of like still in this crazy high territory. You, you got to think about it. Right now, inflation is around 8%. Next year, it's supposed to go to, you know, three to four. And that's what the markets are pricing right now. If we don't get that sort of reset lower, the Fed is just out of, out of tools and might have to raise rates higher than expected, which is a complete disaster. So I would sort so of- can you, So yeah. can you explain that again? Because yeah, sure. I, 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 so I am- I, I certainly think I'm more financially literate than like a normal person, but I think I, I think there's like the sense of like when you start talking about basis points and rate, like your your eyes kind of glaze over a little okay. bit. So, but I, I would really like to understand. So, when the Fed raises their rates, yes, what what are they raising? Yeah, who does that impact, and what are the downflows? So there, so there are banks that clear at the Fed, and they're affecting the rates that these banks are borrowing from the Fed at. So there's different banks, they leave collateral with the Fed and they're borrowing money against it. And that's the rate. And so long story short is every single rate we basically use for everything, including to price stocks, to price mortgages, to price everything, it all kind of starts with that, right? So the Fed funds rate, let's just make up numbers, you know, it's gonna go to three sure. in a few months, right? That's kind of what, that's a very, very high probability outcome. So the Fed fund, when we close our eyes and open in three months, will be around three, okay? Then, you know, banks borrow from each other a little bit higher than that, maybe three and a half, four. The 30-year mortgages will be around 6%. So every asset gets priced based off of that. And if you think about it, it's like the cost of capital. So when you buy Bitcoin, for example, what you're doing is you're giving up other opportunities, right? You decided to buy Bitcoin, you decided not to buy other things. The money in the checking account now is going to get 3% versus before it got zero. So even things like Bitcoin, absolutely are massively affected by what you get from the risk-free rate. And so every single asset class is priced off of it. And what we've seen as these rates go up, it sounds like not a big deal, right? 0%, 3%, whatever, not sure. a big deal. But the shit on the extreme part of the risk curve, and I would, I would put crypto in there, things 100%. like, you know, like flying taxis and whatever else, you know, like spaceships and all this, you know, um, even, even stuff like- self-driving cars. Yeah, self-driving car. Yeah, but, but you know, these companies that don't make money, right? If you don't make money, you're effectively burning money for a period of time. That money is now more expensive to burn, right? Because now, now that money could have been doing something else, getting 3% risk-free versus 0% risk-free. So money's just more expensive. And so every single asset class is really dependent on this. And so it, it might seem kind of boring, but like, that's what's happened. Like the reason everything's taken a huge shit recently is because uh, we're in a world where it's not just where the rates are now. It's the fact that the Fed has been so kind to asset prices, you know, since 2006, seven, eight, yeah, whatever. Long, long time. Long, long, long time, right? And now they're sort of, they don't like, they don't have their hands on the wheel anymore. Like they're not driving the ship anymore. Like inflation's driving the ship. And the only tool they have to fight inflation is, is higher interest rates. And inflation is, is in many times worse than a lot of like the, 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 People in charge of government are more scared of inflation than they are scared of a stock market going down. They, they really want to fix inflation because inflation hurts the, the low end of the food chain. The people that are the poorest are the most affected by inflation. People that whose food and gas prices make up a chunk of what they're spending every month. 
you know, that's really, and those are voters and, you know, all sorts of constituents that really matter to people in policy. So long story short, uh, the, they care more about inflation than the stock market, and they're going to keep fighting it with higher rates until they get it under control. And that's what I was saying before. There is this ugly scenario where, yes, we raise rates, we go into a recession, but then inflation doesn't chill out. And that's, that's, that's not pricing. So historically, what do governments do to chill out inflation? I mean, other than the, the obvious of, um, you know, making less dollars, right? Like that, that's, uh, that's like priority number one, although it, it does not seem like that message has reached uh, the Federal Reserve here in the United States. Maybe it will. I don't know. Uh, and again, that's like, that's like Bitcoin, like BitPill talking to, because I, I do definitely disagree with like the reductivist, uh, you know, hardcore Bitcoin perspective of inflation is all the Fed's fault. It's 100%, you know, Trump and Biden printing all this money. Like, I, I think that's pretty reductionist. So what are, what are the tools in the tool chest to fight inflation? I think you have to realize that we're sort of in a science experiment here because the things that used to happen, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, they a all lot of people have been have been talking about the, the 70s, right? Like the stagflation period. Right. But but if you think about what the government has done to support the stock market during COVID, that is like the equivalent of like bringing like an, like a automatic weapon when when before they had like paper forks. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like like that. So we're, we're in this period of time where I think what's happening is that it's very hard to look back in history and find like a great parallel because what the government did during COVID was so, so, so powerful. And obviously, I think looking back on it, we can all agree, even, even I'm not very political, but even people on the left can agree that sure. that last COVID stimulus package we passed of almost $2 trillion, like that really, and by the way, we tried to pass Build Back Better which would have been like this four, massive infrastructure. Four trillion, bill. right? Yeah, some, they were trying for some huge numbers there. So, um, but yeah, I think normally what's, what's happened is not relevant for today. What today is what's going to happen is higher interest rates, but also you have to think about the Fed balance sheet. So the Fed was buying all these bonds to, right. to push down lower term rates, right? So the Fed has a tool to, to change the overnight rate, which is the, you know, the, the Federal Reserve, FOMC meetings, whatever, they can change the overnight rate. What they ended up doing was also needed to change. They wanted to change the long-term rates because really, if you're making like a long investment, like a 10-year investment, it doesn't matter to you what the overnight rate is. It matters what the long-term rate is because that's where you can lock up your money and get a return. So the Fed was artificially lowering, uh, raising the price of bonds, lowering the long-term interest rates. And they're also in the process of unwinding that. So that is really where a lot of the money got poured into the system was the Fed buying these bonds in the market. And now they're going to let them run off their balance sheet. So those are the two things you have to monitor, what the overnight rate is and, and how the Fed is letting things run off its balance sheet. And again, all of this comes back to 2020. Um, we, and I, I'm not second guessing anything that happened early in 2020. Like that was pretty fucking awful. And it's right. hard to second guess, right? We needed a PPP. We needed money in people's pockets. Uh, we needed to drop interest rates to zero. We needed to buy bonds. We needed to do anything we could because it was pretty unprecedented when it happened. The, the mistake was what happened a year and a half, two years later, when we didn't, we didn't take our medicine when we should have, and we actually passed more stuff that had no business being passed. No one needed that last stimmy. I'm not saying no one, but like broadly speaking, that last stimmy check, like that wasn't in a time of need for people. And so, yeah, so now, now we're paying the consequences and it's all about just overnight rate and what the Fed does with this balance sheet. Yeah. And there are, I mean, you know, there are, there are trade-offs for everything, right? Like the trade-off 
for those massive stimulus packages is what we're dealing with now. Like, like, cause eventually the piper has to be paid. And I guess this is kind of one of the founding um, principles of like modern liberalism, which I'm not that big of a fan of is more of like a classic left-leaning type person, which is that, you know, debt is just money that we owe ourselves. Right. And I, I think the, and again, I'm not, I'm far, far from an expert, but you know, kind of the way that the United States keeps our, our, the power of our money and the power of our asset classes is, I mean, we make other people use our money, right? And kind of at the end of the day, you know, the existence of the petrodollar and, and, you know, pricing all these things in US dollars, that's so massive for us, right? I mean, just like the, the other countries needing to use our money like that, it creates so much more demand for, for that money. And I guess what, is starting to seem worrying now is like, why would, why would another, like, you know, why would, and we're seeing this with Russia stuff too, of what happens when stuff stops getting priced in us dollars. Like the, what the ruble is like one of the best investments you could have made right now. It won't, you know, it won't, it won't crack because all the Russian energy is being priced in, in rubles. So I, you know, from, from your perspective, are you like, are you scared of that? Are you worrying that? Are you seeing signs of the cracking of demand for the dollar in, uh, you know, across other countries? Yeah, this is this is something I, I hear from the Bitcoin people too a lot. Obviously, yeah, you again. Know that. Yeah, I'm, I don't pretend to be like a super expert on this topic, but what I will say is that when I look around the world at other large currencies, none of them look interesting to me. Like, do you really want everything? Like, is the Euro better than like, think about the Euro. It's a fucking shit show. You have, you know, have these like different countries in way different places, you know, Germany versus Greece. Could you think about like two more different places in terms of what, you know, one monetary policy covering Germany and Greece. It's like, it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't really work. Like there are times when Greece is in really bad shape. Germany is not, and they care about different things. Like one cares about inflation. One doesn't obviously Germany has a, a horrible history of, inflation leading to problems. And so long story short, uh, the euro doesn't seem that great to me. Uh, RMB, you know, Chinese one, like, I mean, come on, like you can't even, that's not a free market. Like, no, that's not serious. Um, the yen, you know, so when I look around, it's like, okay, yes, the dollar has tons of problems, but I think broadly speaking around the world, most people would rather have dollars than whatever they have. Obviously, you know, Bitcoin sort of does deserve a part in this conversation because dollars have a lot of problems with them inherently i'm just saying relative to the other currencies out there it's the one and the reason why the dollar's been so strong right now is that we've raised rates here you know like one of the big factors in relative value of currencies is the the, the interest rates right because if you get three percent in the u.s you get zero percent in japan like you're more likely to put your money in the u.s where you can get a real return so that's the other thing that we're seeing right now the u.s is definitely going to raise rates to three percent but europe's kind of a mess japan probably won't raise rates some people think they will but yeah, when I look out, I don't wake up and think, oh my gosh, we're gonna like no one's gonna want to touch the dollar anymore. It's total crap. And everyone's gonna use something other currency or something Bitcoin. Like maybe one day that's something for our maybe our grandchildren to deal with. But I, right. I don't see Yeah. I mean, which honestly, like as someone who loves Bitcoin, I do like I it's it's actually I think people should be reassured by that because I think that a lot of the people who really love Bitcoin haven't worked like have not gamed out what a world that runs on Bitcoin would actually look like i mean first off is like uh to the to the scale of global finance bitcoin is not ready like people love the lightning network or whatever but you know it's not ready to be a payment rail for uh you know 10 billion dollar like energy deals it's just not and yeah. then also it's like 
yeah, the dollar has all these problems. There's all these problems with, you know, um, you know, governmental money and things like that. But it's like, you know, the if 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 oil was going to be priced in Bitcoin tomorrow, we really just have very similar power dynamics at play in the world that we do now. It's just that the the people with the most wealth would be like a bunch of guys who played online poker in 2014, <laughs> you know, like it would just, it would just really shift those. It would just really shift those dynamics. So, so I guess, uh, I guess that's the natural next talking point is oil prices, because again, to like a layperson, you look at the price of a barrel of oil and it's not, it's not really that dramatically different than it would have been, you know, in other, uh, what, what is a, a barrel of oil today? It's like 110, like 115, uh, yeah, 110, 120. I haven't looked recently. But yeah. yeah. So uh, it's, it's kind of, and, and it's like, you, you hear the talk on, on both sides of the political parties here in the United States, you know, the leftists will be saying, uh, you know, it's, it's the, it's these greedy oil companies and they're charging too much and they could be charging less. And then you'll hear the people saying, actually, it's the leftist fault because they've cut off the pipeline here in the United States and we're not producing enough here. So, I mean, what, what is the actual, I mean, to not even uh, capital T truth, but just what's your take on the oil pricing situation? Yeah, I think both the left and the right have these like talking points that really annoy me um, about this topic. You know, I think it's very valid to tell the left, um, you know, their main talking point, like you said, is that uh, this is out of our hands. You know, this is a war in Ukraine. What are we supposed to do about it? You know, it's not about policy in the U.S. It's just out of our control. Global commodity, blah, blah, blah. The right side of it is like has some validity, but like blaming everything on decisions Democrats have made. You know, we did have Trump in power for quite a long time where we could have gotten some, gotten some stuff done. Um, yes, oil infrastructure is underdeveloped. I think the main problem is this. I live in Oklahoma City where there's a ton of like, this is an oil town, right? So I'm, I'm around- You could have literally went and got, you could have went when oil futures went negative. You could have went and hauled I could have bought some oil in my backyard for sure, dude. Yeah, yeah. I should have just filled up my tanker. Um, but uh, I think- the way I would think about it is go look back. So look back at 2015, right? 2015 oil prices were about where they are today. Um, however, at the time, uh, money poured into oil and gas. So private equity funds, which the money was coming from pensions and you know, you know, different high net worth sovereign wealth funds poured into oil and gas. They drilled, they drilled, they drilled. What happened? It just all just went to hell in the US and, and the, around the world. Way oversupplied, everything just tanked. And oil and gas has a long, long, long history of that, right? Where they, prices are good, everyone jumps in, everyone drills a whole bunch, everyone gets screwed. That's the same thing well, over very, and over again. It's a very touchy market, right? It's both, it's both very susceptible to undersupply and oversupply. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I don't have the rough numbers, but I think the world oil is like 100 million barrels a day. Less, I, these are very rough numbers, but around 100 million barrels a day. But only a few million barrels oversupply or a few million barrels undersupply can really change the price because it's it's a it's a very global commodity. So, like even if oil is oversupplied in Europe, it'll trickle down to the rest of the world. We're unlike natural gas. Natural gas, right? It's way harder to move it. You can freeze it. Liquid natural gas is a, a huge thing, but it does. It's not like oil, right? It doesn't move around the world like that, right? And so, a small oversupply, even in like one random part of the Middle East or wherever, you know, can have a huge effect on global pricing. So. Long story short, these companies are all now sitting there and they have shareholders that are telling them, not again, do not do this again. Do not go crazy drilling again. I want you to show me every well you drill, I want this to make some sense. So 
I think what's going on here is yes, prices are high right now, but the companies are not operating as if prices will be high in five years. You know, there's a lot. Right. Of, and also, if you look at the administration, right? Yes, right now they want everyone to drill, but what were they saying around the election time? You know, they were saying oil and gas, we don't need this shit anymore. You know, we don't need to support this industry anymore. Like this is evil money, blah, 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 blah. Right, and right. even in Europe, they're doing insane things, right? They're closing power, nuclear power plants in Europe. They're doing all sorts of insane things around the world. So my view is that these companies are acting rational. And if you actually wanted these companies to drill more, um, they would have to get some sort of a guarantee on pricing. Because I think these are like longer term lead times on, on this kind of, these kind of decisions. And all they've ever done in history has gotten burned by this. So they're sitting there like, it's, and it's how, how are you blaming a company for being economically rational? The industry is actually acting in the best behalf, in the, in the interest of shareholders, which for many, many years, they weren't, they weren't doing that. And so that's where we're at right now. And I, and I think if you believe in free markets, this is where you're going to end up. And the way you fix this is, I don't know, like I heard some talk about maybe like, so the U.S. Is, can be a huge buyer of oil. We have the strategic petroleum reserve, right? We can hold right. like millions of barrels of oil, right? The U.S. government could guarantee like a minimum price, you know, in five years on oil. You would, if, if something like that happened, you would see a lot more production. Of course, pipelines are also a big deal. Like we really should be building these pipelines, which connect things together, which helps lower pricing, especially when we're talking about refining, right? Everyone's talking about refining now because yes, we see the price of oil. We also see the price of gasoline when you go filling up. And that spread, which people call the crack spread is really, really fat right now. Like if you're a refiner right now, you're making big bucks. Right. But why is, why, is, why, are there, why is that existing? It's because building a refinery is like a five-year process, right? So yeah, okay, it looks good today, but these guys know that in the past they've gotten burned when they go pour money in. So they're not building new refineries now. Yeah, so, build build a refinery now and and the price of a barrel goes down 30% yeah, or whatever. Like exactly. Fucked. And then yeah. suddenly everyone's refining and then the, the, the spread between the gasoline and the oil goes way down. And so it's it's this very tricky subject, but if you actually wanted to fix it, you you would somehow uh, guarantee the economics to these companies for building out you know these longer term projects and also help them build more pipeline infrastructure. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty gross, it's a pretty gross situation we're in. And I don't really see these companies changing their approach, rightfully so. So I, I guess kind of the, I mean, the other intersecting thing there is it, it would be hard to do price floor guarantees from a federal government perspective, if you don't, if you don't like the source of the energy, right? Because, right. because uh, you know, it's a big thing to, to push green energy, which is, uh, you know, very political, which I, I you know, and which is I, the, the most insane thing about all of this is that the actual best alternative for a lot of this energy usage is, is nuclear power, but it's been so demonized in the United States because of, I mean, you know, a couple, one, there was uh, the, the two big incidents, Chernobyl and uh, the one in Fukushima, Japan. Fukushima yeah. Three Mile Island. And then oh, yeah. honestly, all, I, I kind of just played this back in my head, but like, what if, just what if it had been a more Western country that had really been pushing nuclear energy? Like what if, you know, for whatever reason, the United Kingdom is like, we're a small island. Let's just do, let's just do this. New, like, I, I wonder if it would be less demonized here. Like that, that's one of my, my big hot takes is that yeah. if, if leftists were serious about getting off of fossil fuel dependence, they would be big on nuclear energy, but they're not. I, I don't think it's a hot take. I mean, if you just lay out the pros and cons of it, this is one of those things where it's like not in my backyard, right? It's like, it makes sense on paper, but yeah, like, but, don't, but don't, do it, don't do it. Don't build it in <laughs> St. Louis, build it, build it, you know, build <laughs> right. it somewhere else. Don't build right. it here, but right. I'd like to use the power, but don't build it here. 
Right. So that, that's the thing, right? It, that's, that's, what, that's what happens here. It's like, it, it looks good on paper. I agree with it. But I also agree that like, I wouldn't want to live anywhere near one. <laughs> Neither would you. I mean, you know, I bet you know? If, a, if there was a really good, smart leftist politician, they could sell it in a good way because the, the plants are massive. I mean, huge. I mean, how many jobs would get created if you built one of these yeah. in Tuscaloosa or whatever? I mean, you know, it's like, it's like what? 20,000 jobs, maybe more, maybe. Yeah, I, I think one of the things you got to think about, and I got in the weeds with some of this. So there are these companies that build nuclear power plants. As you might imagine, there's not many of them because we're not right. really building many, right? But there's a company I believe is called Shaw and it was acquired by Chicago Bridge and Iron. And they were building nuclear projects. I believe it was in South Carolina. And I, I, I looked into this project quite a bit. And the issue is because we haven't built nuclear power stuff in a long time, yeah, the costs of building these plants are insane now Massive. because there's so many more checks and balances and whatever. And so you're talking about like an extremely expensive build out because the way we built the power plant, the nuclear power plants that we're using today, they're, they, they don't that wouldn't fly uh, in 2022. Like there's much higher safety standards in many ways, not to say those nuclear power plants aren't safe. Um, so I think one thing you do have to consider is that we the world has not been building these plants. So it's not like. Uh, even just even pricing these things out is extremely complicated. And yeah. I believe like if you look at Chicago Bridge and Iron, that stock a few years ago, like basically went to zero because they had massive overruns at the South Carolina plant. And and yeah, it, anyway, long, long story short, I think a lot of this stuff makes a lot of sense. I'm with you on the on the nuclear stuff, but there's a lot there's a lot more going on behind the scenes to make this actually happen. I mean, that's how that's where you get with. It's like anytime you try, you start to try and diagnose and fix a problem with the global economy, that's where you get to. It's like, you, um, yeah, what you, so like about 15 years ago, but before 9-11, there was this, there was this theory called that this theory that we were at the end of history, that global conflict was basically done. There would be no more world wars, you know, uh, there would be no more religious crusades, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, right? Because and it was a, a, in the '90s, great time to be alive, especially if you were in a Western country. The Soviet wall had fallen. You know, communism was no longer the scourge. And it's it's like I I so wish I could have gone back and told those people this is what's about to happen because the 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 global uh, financial problems and you know and then you tie all that into like wars in the Middle East and of course what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine right now and like China is is kind of communist kind of not and it's like they might have more wealth than us like it's close it's like it, it's so amazing to go back and be like this is what like the point I was trying to make I just went on too far was like everything is so labyrinthian where you start to try and you you start to try and plug one leak and then it, it opens up three other leaks at the other side of the boat I'm with you. It's, it's, it's pretty messy right now. And it's, uh, I mean, it just, it, and um, it feels, it feels really impossible to me for, for a normal person right now, with just like, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a 35 year old dad and I'd like to start, you know, putting some money away for retirement. And it's like, if, if I was waking up and looking at the markets, any market today, I'd be like, how am I supposed to protect myself from, from inflation? Right. It's like all numbers are down. The, the federal government doesn't seem to know what they want to do. Like, oh, crypto hedge against inflation. Nope, like limit down, right? Like just totally bust. Oh, the housing market. It's like, well, rates are way up. So people are going to stop buying houses. We haven't even talked about the housing market yet, but that's about to be. My, my prediction is like three, four months from now is it's going to get really dire as, as the 
fires totally evaporate. It's interesting. It's it's I, there's two sides to this. I I, I see that side, but also, um, okay. I my I have a I long story. I couldn't get a thirty year mortgage. Anyone that works for me can get a thirty year mortgage, but because you own a business, it's like a fucking mess to get a mortgage. Really? So, yes, I have a fifteen year mortgage at a okay. worse rate than like yeah like people that I work for me could have bought my house with better terms than, than I could. That's a longer story. But you know, the, the, the whole buying a house market is, is all about having a, um, Oh my God. What's the, what's the tax form that you get? Oh my gosh. Uh, uh, a W2. W2. There we go. It's all about a W2, right? It, W2 is like gold. You have the W2. You yeah. The I, 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 I did that. And, and like, dude, it got, it got so intense. I'm like sending, I'm sending my mortgage lender, like flow blockchain receipts to be like, no, I really do own this. It's really, and he's <laughs> like, so what for, for me, what ended up happening was my father-in-law had to gift me cash and then I paid it back to him. But it's like, what if I had not been in that position? What if, what if I had just been a guy, I literally would not have been able to prove right. that the money was mine. It's totally insane buying a house without a W-2. But for me, it was, anyway, long story short, I think people like myself, so I have a, I'm locked in at a 15 year at like mid threes, okay? Yeah. If, if I sold my house now, which I could get a good price on right now, uh, and I buy a new house, I'm, I'm gonna get six now, low sixes probably. Real and probably more by the end of the week. Well, yeah, I mean, the market's already there, right? So like right. when you go buy a house tomorrow, they already know where rates, I mean, in theory, right? I, don't, I think there are some, some people that are like, oh shit, I got to close this week. The Fed's going to raise next week. It's like, bro, like yeah. the banks have some idea what's happening here. Don't just chill. Um, that being said, uh, I think there's a lot of people that are locked in their house now. You know what I mean? Like if you locked in a low rate, like pretty much everyone who owns a house did, unless they bought it very recently, like you just can't really sell that easily and buy a new house. So at, on the flip side, yes, buying a house is going to be more challenging with higher rates but on the supply side like i look at my zillow in my market there's like very little for sale near me it's like people are just not selling either so yeah because because why would you because then you right. have to relocate and you have to relocate and you have to lock in so so that does help housing prices right just like lowering supply of listings and whatever i think what you're going to see is less things listed uh pricing come in a little bit and just less overall transactions. Uh, but that being said, I, I mean, I think, I think there is still like, people still have jobs. We're not looking at 08 here. We're not looking at like what might've been in 2020. I do think people are gonna be able to pay their mortgages and stay in their houses in this recession that were like- I did, I did see that adjustable rate mortgages are making a comeback, which just gave me really bad vibes. Like even- yeah. And someone tried to explain it to me, like, actually, it makes sense if you're in X, know, Y, Z my financial too. situation. Yes. And I'm like, I just even if it's true, even if what you're telling me is true, and in some people's financial situation, it makes sense. It just gives me horrible vibes because like, so in 2008, I would have been 16, 17. So like kind of as my brain is starting to like understand what all that stuff is. And like the number one thing that got hammered in was like, literally never put your name on an adjustable rate mortgage. Cause it'll just, yeah. it's just ba all bad. And, and you're right. Like everyone, I had a whole friend group that was in like the New York city area, like whatever, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York city area. They were all buying houses with the eight, eight, one arm. And, you know, it's crazy that, you know, it, it's you, like you said, like what, what happens? You're like, that thing snaps to a, to a mortgage at, or snaps to a rate in like in the mid, you know, you know, six, seven, 8%. It's like your monthly housing price, your monthly cost goes 
like five X higher or something. It's, it's insane. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It is a little bit scary, but we're, to be fair, if you zoom out, look at 08, it's just nothing compared to that. Like the amount of crazy mortgages that were outstanding in 2008, it, just, it makes today look like, like going to church, you know, it's like, it's like really boring compared to 08. So I do think if you just looked at just the raw numbers of what was happening in the housing market in 06 versus 2020 and 2021. Um, yeah, we had, we, what we did have recently, just in kind of scary housing appreciation. Like it's just terrifying when houses go up 20% every year to the last two years or whatever. It's just insane. But at least in, around, around me, that's what it is. And I think the country is a little bit lower than that, but yeah, it's 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 pretty close. Like I, I bought my house at what I thought was the top almost like exactly a year ago. And like it, it already has like if I listed it, I would I'd probably not 20 percent, but I'd probably make money. But I, I'm not not going to do that. Yeah. Like I like I just honestly, I feel like the way the every because, you know, the kind of the everything bubble that that's kind of my thing is I just think the the the, the big macro cause for like, every, you know, logging in and seeing numbers down 20% every single day is just like, we got in such a bubble of massive appreciation for everything that just a little, not even a little bit, a lot of bit of course correction is needed. So like, I just, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not backing this up with any like modeling. It's just like, it just feels like it's insane that markets in general could have appreciated so much in what, 20 months, basically. Well, yeah, I think, I think people in crypto didn't realize where they were on the risk spectrum. Like, like I always told people like how much people say, how much money I put in crypto? I'd be like, I have like a couple percent of my net worth now. Well, he was a little bit higher before, but you know, it was like four or 5%, whatever, you know? And I saw people being like, you know, 50% is like a conservative amount to put in crypto. And then we, we obviously all know people that were all in crypto too. So I, I just think there are, there are people listening to this right now, absolutely cringing because they know that I'm one of those people that's leveraged. So not leveraged though. I've never, never margin traded, never leveraged trade, but I also, I'm not selling. Like I, I, I will, I will come back in 30 years, but it's like, uh, I, you are right though. To, I, to, I, want, saying, I want like, people it, listening it, to know that you are a hundred percent right. That these are basically the riskiest assets on the market. Well, yeah. And they were grouped in with all this other risky, like the same people that are buying crypto were also the same people buying the very riskiest stocks, the SPACs, all that stuff. Right. It was the it, same. Yeah. It's the same penny like, stocks. Uh, you're right. Uh, the whole I, thing. Exactly. And that's why I think that people are like, Oh, Bitcoin inflation head. What a joke. Like it, it, it could under different circumstances, it could have been, could have been a very good inflation hedge. It just got, it just was in the, it's a, you know, where it was priced, the activity around it, the people that were in it, it was in an extremely high risk part of the risk spectrum. And everything, not just crypto, everything in that bucket has gotten destroyed. So like, that's why I tell people, like, I don't think people should just give up on all their crypto thesis. I, I think you and I can agree that there's a lot of just garbage in crypto. Like you just look oh. at like the top 30 coins. It's like, you know, 20 of them make you want to throw up, right? It's like, it's like, I mean, I don't know. I don't own any of them. You know, I'm one of right. these. I'm one of these. There is no, there is no second okay. best. I know I do. I own Ethereum. I bought Ethereum and I am really interested in Ethereum use cases, right? Of like, like smart contracts. And like, uh, there's a great book. Um, if uh, I, I've recommended it on the show a ton, it's called Radical Markets by Glenn Whale. It's like 180 okay. pages. It's it's my favorite thing on finance I've ever read. I, I'm oh, sure that you would enjoy it. All right, I'll, um, I'll read it. But and another thing that has become really clear in these markets is that the prices were also fake. 
like the the i like the idea that that ethereum was really forty four hundred dollars or that bitcoin was really sixty five thousand dollars is maybe maybe it traded at that price but it was it i mean it, it was a mirage because so much of that was being done on leverage trading on margin on margin trading and being done in a really incestuous way where it's like this one exchange is applying the margin for this other exchange and so they go back to this exchange and buy more and it's it's very very uh i mean it would never it, it you're not allowed to i well i don't know you can kind of trade that way in traditional markets but not to the same extent and we're seeing it now on well, the reverse with all this look at insane that. forced selling yeah i mean we do you see that in traditional markets do you ever follow that bill Huang archegos thing like that guy was doing the same shit you just described. Like he was borrowing from one bank and then another bank and then another bank and not telling them what he had overall lying. Well, allegedly like lying about what he was doing. He just got charged criminally with something. Um, I don't think what you just described is like totally unique to crypto. I think what ends up happening though is like that sort of part of the risk spectrum it also attracts people that trade like that. And, right. you know, and that's what's, I mean, like, yeah, it, I, I just hope, I think that people just need to understand that right now is probably, I mean, no one's calling a bottom here, but if you just read what people are saying that are really smart about markets, like if we get a bunch of bad outcomes from here, the S&P, most people think like a bad outcome from here is another down 15% on the S&P, which is almost doubling, maybe almost 70% like of the move, like another 70% of the move we already had. Um, I think if that happens, you'd see Bitcoin where you saw it in early 2020 and, and those kind of prices. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's sort of what I would that's how I would handicap like a really bad outcome from here. But like you said earlier in the show, like this is a pretty good environment for investing, like. Wherever you want to be, pretty, it's spectrum. a pretty good environment for investing if you're willing to like eat it for seven years, if it goes that way. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, but like This is better. Like this is better than a lot of other times in history. Like so often oh, yeah. you, know, you go on these shows and like, you know, you're getting the S and P at like a mid teens multiple, you know, you're getting Google is like 17 times earnings right now. Like, just think about that. Like, like Google, yes, everyone knows advertising budgets are going to come down on places like Google because so much of the shit people were spending on with these like tech companies that were trying to get users and you know, they were just getting users at any cost, not if, if, even if it wasn't economical, because they were just trying to show growth. We all know that they were buying ads on Google and Facebook and Instagram, Snapchat, all that shit. We all know it's going to go down. But still, like, do you really not think in 10 years we're going to open up and there's going to be a better search place than Google? Like, you're getting a really good price on a good, good price. It's, I think the pricing is better in traditional markets right now than crypto. Um, but like, it's really hard to know what Bitcoin is worth. Like, I just, it's a lot easier for me to, to analyze Google than the price of Bitcoin. Like it's just like a lot more, it's a lot more straightforward. And it's pretty clear if you look at traditional markets right now, you're getting good pricing. You're also getting good prices. If, you, if, you're like, if you're like my parents and you're in retirement age, like there's way better options for you now. Like before right. you buy treasuries, you get 25 basis points. You can grind out like four or 5% right now with near zero risk. Like that's that's actually well, what nice. the, there there's one there's one thing like you you literally just go to the treasury website and you buy oh, yeah, what is yeah, it what bonds. is it it's yeah, one year bonds at like nine point six percent that yeah, are guaranteed to beat inflation a certain amount, right it's like fifteen grand a year I forget the number like yeah it, it's not gonna that will make your retirement but like yeah that is something that most people should be doing uh, I haven't done it to be fully I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it but <laughs> like I should it'd, it'd be it'd be a yeah. lot better than like dumping more. I won a I won a golf bet yesterday. I won Fitzpatrick, and I was like, 
hundred percent of the time when I win a golf outright up until this point in my life, I've just dumped it into Bitcoin. And one of my, one of my buddies is like, Davis, if you dump this into Bitcoin, I'm going to testify against you in your divorce hearing. Like just do <laughs> like do something more responsible with this money. And I was no. like, all right, whatever. But you know what you said is really, it really is important to, I, I do feel like I have some friends that have partners and, and the communication isn't great with them. Like Dude, yeah, that is it's some real. scary shit. Like, you know, you and your partner should be on the same page with all this shit. And uh, man, yeah, that is really, that is really good life advice as someone, as someone who's about to be married and has had to start to really think about this for the first time. It's like not, not a great time to be getting married and see your net worth uh, just get chunked. So uh, but yes, yes, that is in general. And once you, you know, once you start a family and you have kids, like I do think I've seen a lot of people that are to complete to gens and they take a lot of risk in their life. But usually when they have kids in a family, they do set aside a certain amount just so, you know, it, it is smart not to have everything all in on something super speculative. Yeah. Buy, buy some, buy some Vanguard ETFs, you know, yeah, lock it even, away. Yeah. I have my problems with those, but yeah, you're right. Those are exactly those. Those what's are probably the, what's your what's your problem with the Vanguard ETF. So, I don't think these these passive index funds were designed to be as big as they are. You know, those funds are basically. Oh yeah, I never thought yeah, those, about that. Those funds are basically like copying other people's homework, right? Like they don't do shit, right? They don't they don't like care that GameStop is at ten dollars or three hundred dollars, right? If it's in the ETF or in the index, they're just going to buy it, right? So they're doing zero work. They just, they just buy whatever they're supposed to buy, regardless of the price. So basically, the whole thing that they're relying on is the markets being relatively efficient. If you read all the, you know, Bogle stuff from back in the day, like, it's like, okay, like, let's let somebody else, all the active people figure out the right price for all these things. You know, when earnings comes out on Apple, right? Vanguard isn't deciding what the hell the price is. Like, there's active traders that are reading the news and reacting to it and whatever, and investors. So I think right now, don't get, don't quote me exactly, but a passive index funds are, are something around half of everything, right? So, and market share keeps going up and up and up in those. So if you close your eyes and you imagine a world where that number is like 60% and then 70%, right? you're going to have these zombie shareholders just basically not doing any homework, hoping that some smart hedge fund comes in there and at least when it has bad earnings, shorts it and when it has good earnings, buys it. Right. But they're just getting a little bit big. And so I, I just think it's, it could act as, I don't know if we're there yet, but at some point it could act a little bit destabilizing because uh, it's just not- I, I, think you, I think you just found the source of like the 2028 financial crisis. No, it, it, it could be a real problem. Like even, even the most adamant people that are big believers in passive investing, are not thrilled with the idea that this could be a huge, like, and the other, these companies don't even like vote their shares properly. Like, like your Vanguard, you have however many trillions under management, a shareholder vote comes up, like you're, you're the big shareholder often. Like you should be yeah. taking the vote seriously. They outsource that to proxy advisory firms and they sometimes listen, sometimes don't. But like, it's just like bizarre to me that we're, that, that we're these basically, these, gigantic pools of money are going to be controlling this much of our equity market. Uh, it, it worked a lot better when, when passive started and it was 10%, 15%, 20% makes made a ton of sense, but it, you know, at some point it's kind of dicey. That's I had literally never thought of it that way before, but like, yeah, of course, if you're just passively buying whatever's there and then that builds and builds and builds, then like that passivity makes up the market in and of itself, which is, 
that's a weird that's just a weird yeah, spot it, it's yeah. just they're just copying the homework they're hoping that someone else figured out oh like tesla's overvalued or undervalued or whatever like they're not doing any homework and yeah it's super they're yeah like i think you just nailed it on the head 2030 we could be talking about this on your podcast because it, it really it really becomes an issue right all there's ever been basically in our lifetimes is inflows in the passive which has really helped the market because all that's happened is money coming out of active and into passive. If you ever saw that reverse where money was flowing out of passive, it would be ugly. Like if, if, if the mentality changed on people. So. But that, yeah. that probably won't happen though. Right. I mean, well, like uh, what, what would, what would have to happen for, for average person X to be like, you know what, I'm going to manage this myself. Right. Or even, like, or even like Edward Jones, like, I have money. Like I just give money to an Edward Jones guy and he probably just buys mutual funds. Like he's, he's, I don't think, I don't think uh, my guy is sitting there being like, all right, I'm getting, I'm getting short on, on. You don't want that guy. You, you don't want that guy. You don't want that guy to do that. No, right? I don't. You don't. Yeah. You don't want the guy to do that, but you know, GameStop's a great example. So when GameStop was like $20, if you looked at the shareholders, it was like Michael Burry was a shareholder. Like there were value guys in there. There were, there were like a lot of hedge funds in there. They're all like, this is undervalued. They had their thesis, whatever. GameStop goes to 200. What happens? Every single person paying attention, Michael Burry included, every single, every single like rational investor, sorry to the retail people out there that are buying it, but every single person that was like a long-term investor that was paying attention sold it. But did any of those ETF index products that those past investors know? Like they actually were buying more. They were doing the same thing that people on Reddit were doing. As money flowed in, now GameStop is 10% bigger. They have to buy 10% more GameStop every dollar that flows into their ETF. They're buying more. So I, I do think we get into a world where, where when passive gets really big, you're going to have more companies that are massively owned by people not paying attention. And that's when you get these big dislocations in pricing. And that's when people get hurt. Like the random investor out there that doesn't know anything about stocks that decides to buy stocks, they're really helped by the professionals out there that are helping these assets approach some sort of fair value. Um, imagine like sports betting, for example, imagine if there was no market, okay? And every time a fish wanted to bet on the Dallas Cowboys, right? They called up someplace and they just got- They, they called up MGM and they were like, yeah, yeah, you can have the Cowboys for plus 150. Yeah, exactly, yeah. whatever the hell, the, right, exactly. Think about how bad that would be for that person, right? It'd be just devastating. And they, they the, the, you know, the random sports better benefits so much from this efficient market. It's like the same thing in stocks. And- but once you get once you get these like GameStop situations where all the real shareholders are out and all the zombie shareholders own everything, um, yeah, it's not good. Now, so okay, let me game this out before I say. So there's got to be knock on and unintended market effects from the fact that most of the people investing in these markets kind of are the same person, right? Like a lot, because, because I'm not really going to go buy stocks, right? Like maybe, maybe if I got, if I, if someone like has a play, I'll buy, you know, a hundred dollars of something on Robinhood or whatever, but not really. So there, there, I do want, I, if we're talking about well, things well, that could be our next yeah, financial yeah. I crisis. Think, I think, I think the thing that will become more important is instead of just putting the money in a Vanguard fund, my hope is that there's going to be better active managers out there that are also running ETFs that are better options. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of her at all, but like Kathy Wood's a good example. Like 
she is running a very active strategy now she's yeah. torching torching billions of dollars on fire it seems like every second <laughs> but but like but like just she's a good example of a of a active manager that got a lot of attention and while i do not believe in the stock she's buying i will say that like i hope there are more kathy woods that show up in the future that you know r- random people are like this is a good active manager i'm going to give them their money yes my edward jones guy i don't want him doing shit about buying vanguard funds but I do trust this person with more active decisions. And, and I think people are, once you get to a world where passive is 70, 80%, if we get there, you're going to want to, you're going to want to get out of passive and into, into, into more active. You want someone paying attention. You're going to want to pay that extra management fee for someone paying attention in my view. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, that Bitcoin will ever get into these, into these pro like, you know, I mean, like the, the Bitcoin ETF is like, we're going on like five years now, people saying that this is going to happen or it's not going to happen. But I mean, do you think 20 years, like, I don't know, our, our, our kids are, uh, when they set up their retirement account at work or whatever, though, they can check the box that they want to, they want to buy, you know, 5% of this retirement portfolio in Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean that sure, certainly should be possible. But like, do you do you know anybody right now that's like, I love Bitcoin, but man, like, but what I, I really want it. is I want someone yeah. else to hold it for me. Yeah, exactly. Or like, or or like, hey, it's so fucking easy to buy Bitcoin, right? Like, you just go on like like Super my grandma, yeah. like yeah, like my parents could figure that out. They just you know they go on Coinbase or whatever and they open an account. I, I think the people, I think the people that this would be for would actually be for mega rich people who want the, the custodial company to do the tax harvesting. I think, I think that would be, I think that would be the demand for it, which I think is why the grayscale thing exists. Yeah. I, we're not that far from like uh, Goldman Sachs asset management wealth person if they can't already own it today, which I'm not sure, like I believe, so they they can, so they can. so they can. I, I I talked to someone from Masari, which is like a, a crypto research firm, like two months ago, three months ago, and I I think they told me that you can call your Goldman Sachs guy and they can figure it out. May I could be making that up, but I think that I think you're right. I think either you can do it or it's close. I I just don't think I've never met anyone. That's like, I'm dying to buy Bitcoin. I just don't know how. I just don't know like, how. I'm dying right. to buy Bitcoin. Even rich guys. Like, have you, I've played a, a poker with a lot of rich dudes. Have you, have you met a lot of rich dudes that are like, man, I just love Bitcoin. I just wish there was an ETF I could buy that I like. Or like, I just don't buy this like mass adoption thing. Like, yeah, like, like, I, so like that's not Bitcoin. how it happened. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I think, I think that thesis within Bitcoin is kind of weak. That, was, that, that has always been my weakest part of it. Is like, we're early in the adoption phase and later on, it doesn't feel like we're early in the adoption you know, phase. You know I who it's don't... actually for that I'm thinking about it? It's actually for like the Krugman type people. I think uh, that... I, I, I think that that makes more sense actually, that that argument that the availability of one is more for like these traditional people who just can't, they can't get their minds around it. All they all they see is, is a non-productive, non-yielding asset and they just, they can't get there. I'm not sure this would change. I mean, Bitcoin is pretty close to a religion. Like people don't believe yeah. it. Be very hard <laughs> You're to, right. That's very true. Very hard to convert people, both sides of it. Like, like both sides of the Bitcoin, it just feels like very divided now. And yeah, like I think there's a lot of great reasons to own Bitcoin. And, but one of them is not that we're early in the adoption cycle. That, that to me is like a weak argument. I mean, like maybe you can make the argument that the infrastructure isn't there for 
like a sovereign wealth fund to buy a bunch. But like that's, we're seeing this, like that's you know, really all. Salvador seems to have no issue buying them. If that guy can buy a Bitcoin, it's like, like if if the Saudis wanted to add a couple billion dollars of Bitcoin to their sovereign wealth fund, I yeah, bet they, they could, could figure they, it out. I bet they could figure it out too. And you know, there's a well, lot of well, like, what uh, Novogratz does that actually. Yeah, Galaxy, right? Galaxy, right? Yeah, you could do that at Galaxy. Exactly. Yeah. He, so he he and he because he for like a small fee custodializes like lots of Bitcoin for rich people. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, I just, I, I hope people in crypto find better arguments than early in the adoption cycle. That to me is weak. I mean, like we, we're early in the adoption in some aspects of crypto, like use of the blockchain is in the early adoption phase. No doubt about it. Like I, I yeah. really do think in 10 years, we're going to be using this technology for other things, but Bitcoin specific, I don't think we're early in the adoption phase. We're, we're not. So I think we're early in the life cycle of all of the, people that will own it and use it but we're definitely not early in terms of people who wanting want to own it can like everyone who wants to own bitcoin in the world right now has made their decision on that like yeah, who, exactly. who hasn't heard of bitcoin at this point right you know so it's it's, yeah. it's like you're kind of similar you're right to the though NFT if, there, if there are more applications for bitcoin like you mentioned the lightning network if like there's more like uh transactional uses for bitcoin I agree with you. There will be an uptick in adoption, but I was just sort of saying steady state the way Bitcoin is today. Yeah, just like you said, like I think the bets have already been placed. Well, the big the big Bitcoin tail case is that sovereign wealth funds start buying it, right? But not not big ones, not like not you know not Brazil buys a bunch of it, but El Salvador buys some, and then the Central Africa Central African Republic starts buying some, and then. Oh, then maybe Turkey buys some. That's a bigger country. And then, oh, well, if Turkey has it, then Germany needs some. And then well, so that's the cascade. Help, help me understand. So some of these countries make it intentionally hard to get money out, right? Because so yes. many people that are in these countries want to get money out. And so it's weird to me, like these countries that basically have tight capital controls would suddenly embrace Bitcoin. Because like Bitcoin's all about not having no, no any, borders, you know, right. borders, right? So you you know well I think um, the argument is I think the argument is that not so it wouldn't be that they would want the people to use it it wouldn't be it would be it would be that the government wants okay. to have it because the government foresees x y and z playing out where this actually helps them hold sovereign wealth you know hold their wealth yeah, in a much I more think, predictable way I think the countries that make most sense for this are like El Salvador and like yeah. the Philippines no, like countries where remittances are huge because like the yes. a very easy, like it's fucking off. Have you ever used Western Union in, in your life? To I, I, I used it one time, okay. never again. Yeah, so like if you go through that experience and like there's tons, I grew up in Hong Kong where there's a lot of people from Philippines working there and they're making money and they're sending it home. There are legal ways of doing it where they take like five, 10% or, or more. And then there's like a dark market for remittances. So I think like the countries that, a large part of their GDP, like El Salvador, like the Philippines, like Bangladesh, like places like that, where remittances are huge, people sending money back. Um, I think those should be the first countries to really adopt it. So it, that, in that sense, it made sense because El Salvador should be all about Bitcoin because there's a huge rake on the economy of El Salvador by the middlemen in this remittances process that Bitcoin is like a very clear solution for. Yeah, uh, 100%. Um... We can talk. We can talk a little NFTs before you get out of here. I mean, sure. I can't can't imagine anything I'd rather fucking buy less today than a cartoon picture uh, of an animal. And I I have I have some. 
uh, wish I would have done more selling and a little bit less buying, but you know, it is, it is, it is what it is. I mean, I, so just what, what kind of, what are, what are your, what are your takes on the NFT space and, and how that interacts with the larger financial markets? I think they're isolated from the larger financial markets, or maybe they're sort of like us, you know, they're, they're, they're even further on the risk spectrum. <laughs> there there is on the, on the bell curve. It is literally at the end. It is, it is 99th yeah, percentile risk. curve. Yeah. It's pretty close. Um, I think during NFT mania, when it was really going crazy, I was just looking at the numbers and it was like, if you added up how much money OpenSea was taking out, how much money was being paid in gas and how much money was being paid in mints, it was like literally at one point, like a hundred million bucks a week. Yeah. Like it was insane. So you look at that market and you're like, okay, in order for everything to stabilize, like a hundred million dollars of new money has to flow in just to offset everything the, that's the impermanent loss or whatever yeah, yeah all that money being sucked out and no knock on artists how do you blame an artist for making a bunch of money in eth and then putting in their selling the eth and putting in their checking account like like people and other many people did you cannot blame them for doing that but most of the money going to mints most of the money going to open sea and most of the money going all the money going to gas is basically effectively being taken out of the nft ecosystem so it was very clear to me like like liquidity when you're trading nfts liquidity is like temporary like you have to think of it that way. So anytime I own an NFT where there's liquidity, like you have to look at yourself and be like, I can sell right now. I need to make a decision because right. it's temporary. Like it just comes and it goes. Um, and then the other thing about NFTs is there's just like, uh, it's, it's very hard for me to find. Like, I, I think there are some NFTs that are like scarce assets, but most of them don't feel that way to me. And this whole like membership club model that like Board Ape started, Hey, those just seem stupid to me. Like, I don't care about in real life events. I don't care about the discords. Like, I don't care about any of that shit. So yeah, I missed the so both. That, yeah. That's kind of one of those interesting things where if it was something I did want to do in real life, that would be kind of like if like, yeah. uh, they did, they did this links down one. Yeah. Which like, so like the courses aren't close to me. It doesn't apply, but like in theory, that's yeah. the kind of thing that I actually would buy. We're like, yeah, great. I, it's basically like a membership to a country club where I get to go golf a bunch. Like I would do that. I would buy that. 1000%. And it's way better than the way you buy into a club now. Right. Oh, like, I don't know. Don't even give me fucking started out here in the suburbs okay. of St. Louis. If I want all the, all the public golf courses are 30 minutes from me, but I live next to three golf courses I could walk to, but it's like $60,000 uh, induction fee or whatever. It's horrible. Yes. So but the process, forget the 60,000 buy-in. The real scam is if you like want to get out, you want to sell it, you want to transfer your membership, like they take a huge rake on it. You don't get back your Oh, 60, I didn't know dollars. that. Well, yeah, usually, I mean, the club oh, near me is so like, obnoxious. Yeah, well, that's really what the block, like, like the, the blockchain, you're right. Like membership, I think NFTs are very good. Like, and I'm not a fan of this at all, but like V Friends is a good example. Like a lot of people love Gary V. They want to be at his events. They want to like yep. do different things with him, get a FaceTime phone call, whatever. Like, all right, fine. Like, I don't, I think he's a, you know, out for money, which obviously is. And he's like, maybe not the best intentions of mine, but all, I'm all for it. Like he can do whatever he wants and people want to buy into that, you know, friend group or whatever. Great. Yeah. I, I agree with you. It's a great application. Just, if you just looked at what was happening, like, you know, there was like a new one a week that pudgy penguins and like there's this, like like it's hard to imagine a world in it's, five it's years one of the most ridiculous world. periods of human history yeah. that i have personally been involved in like there's no way i yeah. can explain that to my kids whenever that thing right. comes right like and so why the, the, did, the, like you know it's just insane 
it is insane. So like the way I look at NFTs now is like, I really like punks. That was always the one that I still, I liked. And yeah, I still really liked. cool. And I think those are like, you know, I had three at one point. I have zero now. Um, if, if we got a real, I, I'm actually very close to pulling the trigger on getting back in that market. So I, it's actually, obviously I was just thinking about it like a few days ago and they've actually just completely ripped the past two days. So like maybe, maybe like, I don't know, but that, you know, there are NFTs I think that are more like collectibles that I think will have value like in five years, in 10 years, God knows how much, but I mean, it's hard to look at any of these NFTs and be like, you know, and the, the other, the other class of NFTs that always interests me is the, some of these one-on-one artists have like smaller sets. So like X copy has like smaller sets of NFTs you can buy like collectibles and, and uh Sear light has smaller. So, so like uh, some of these like super famous digital artists have like cheaper entry points. I'm like, that's like buying art. In my opinion, you're buying, you're buying from a legit artist that has a real following. It's not like one of these pudgy penguins. I'm not singling them out for any reason, but like the artist, it's the just, penguins, a, it's like, the funniest name. Pudgy penguins is like the funniest name. Yeah. And it just was like the, also the funniest rug puller. It wasn't funny if you're involved in it, but like it just felt that way. Anyway. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the two classes of NFTs I would buy at the right price if it really started getting ugly in that world would be punks and would be like um, anything that these like really famous artists are creating that I, that I think, you know, people will still care about in the future. Yeah. I mean, and uh, I, I, in general, I am just excited when people use crypto for anything just so like using using crypto to to purchase all the like to to trend as a transactional medium as opposed to a uh like a conversion like uh you know buy with a credit card or whatever like i i thought that oh I thought yeah that was all really cool i i when i gamble now and i lose i'm playing i play in a home game here sometimes the guy that runs the game takes eth from me you know we just yeah. trade eth back and forth and it's just a, so much better of an experience than bringing cash or writing checks or all this other bullshit. I can actually look in his account and see if he has the ETH before I show up to the game if I wanted to, just in case like I'm worried about something. So I yeah. think I think in general, I'm with you. And I also don't know many people that have interacted on the ETH blockchain. So most of my crypto exposure is in Ethereum. I don't, I don't know many people that have actually gotten through the process of having a MetaMask wallet, interacted with the blockchain in some way, whether it was DeFi world with lending and borrowing, whether it was buying NFTs, whatever paying their friends something whatever i think that anyone that's touched it is like this is pretty neat like i pretty most neat. People that, yeah most people that have touched ethereum still own ethereum like i don't know that many people that have actually like done things on ethereum that like completely abandoned it it's 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 awesome it's it's in my opinion the coolest things that are happening in crypto happen there yeah i mean there are uh there are a lot of applications yet to be built on ethereum Definitely. i think um and and not that some of the things that exist right now are are cool, although uh, we are definitely, I mean, we're getting the reaping and the sowing, right? Like you build cool things. And then some, uh, I mean, the, the thing that a lot of people were into was the insane APYs and and uh, seems like APY season is pretty much done after, well, yeah. after the fall of Terra Luna. People, it was crazy. Like, it's so funny. I actually was on that ecosystem in, in Anchor, like, but I blew up on Anchor like a year ago it had like a day <laughs> like went down i don't even remember i don't know like a year ago anchor had like a big down, uh, sorry not anchor like luna had a big down move then recovered it went to like five and then recovered i got wiped out on anchor <laughs> during that move i didn't even have the ability to get wiped out recently but i i was just doing that to try to see what everyone what all the hype was with small money right. but um 
people were not understanding where the yield's coming from. It's super obvious what things in DeFi, the yield is coming from legit. They're like, paying you not to sell. They're paying you not to sell. Right, exactly. Most, most of them, like, I, I, I don't mean, know, 90%. Anyone that, I'm not trying to single anyone out here, but anyone that pitched me Ohm, I, I got pitched Ohm quite a bit. I got a bunch of calls, like when Ohm was doing his thing, three, yeah. three, whatever bullshit. And I was like, it's so obvious what's happening here. Like, this is like classic dressed up Ponzinomics. And like, yeah, like, I think people just need to understand where the yield's coming from. It's, it's actually one place it's okay to get yield from are, are just mining a shit coin that people are buying. That's, that's fine. Like, you're not, you're not, if you might, if you're like putting your ETH to get rewards for some shit coin and you're selling it to someone buying a shit coin, that, that's not a Ponzi. It's like my two, you know, I think the two best places to look for like, yield that's like not bullshit is like a real borrowing and lending which right now you can't get very much on like ave or whatever for lending but like that kind of thing or or finding a shit coin no one's buying shit coins right now but when they are getting yield that way i just think it's it's ridiculous how people just put all the apys together when it was super obvious some of this was ponzi and some of it was not ponzi and i don't know it's wild to me don't put yeah. your money in Ponzi. It's, I don't know who needs to hear it at this point. But yeah, <laughs> but someone still will. Someone like ah, oh, this this I might get out. I might get out before the pyramid collapses. If you're early and you somehow, it's like a cultural. It's like it's like I the Ponzi stuff and the and the crazy NFT stuff are, are to me like very similar. Like very similar. Guess, guessing the next like what was the stupid the goblin? Some of these stupid. Uh, yeah. yeah. So like, Azukis. Yeah. Like, yeah. Get, get, exactly guessing the next azuki or goblin thing to pump is just like getting the next ohm it's like the same type of investing type of i've never been attracted to any like i have a full-time investing job anything in crypto i'm doing i want to be able to like just do it and forget about it like you cannot do that with azukis you cannot do that with ohm like you cannot do it with Terra. like any of these things that are ponzi you just have to pay attention like every second yeah well that's about that's about an hour. I think. I mean, we could uh, we could we could talk more. We will. I will. Uh, maybe maybe if uh, if we get the the true recession, if we dip another, if uh, if if we lose, uh, you know, if we get another hundred basis points rate hike or whatever, we'll uh, we'll come back on. Yes, and, when, uh, rates and go to, when rates go if rates go to five percent overnight, we need to have another podcast for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, do you want do you want to do you want to tell people about uh, about your fun? Do you want to send oh, people on Twitter? Fun, what do you, you want to do? You can find me on Twitter at at Strassa too. Any uh, my DMs are open, so I get a lot of interesting ones. So always happy to interact on there. All right, there we go, everyone. Uh, thank you, Jason, very much for hopping on the show. And uh, folks, we'll be back next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ross has all the spring deals you want, so you can say yes to more looks for you and your budget. Tube tops for less? Yes. Dad shorts for the weekend? Yes. Mini skirts for less than online? That's a yes for you and your bank account. Find your certified yes for me moment and save 20 to 60% off department store prices every day at Ross. 
Hurry in for spring deals today. Items and styles vary by store.